0: Hey everybody, welcome to Blades of Eversync Interview with the Creators. This is the first time we've had some creators from game systems that we're playing on our show and we're super excited. The show is called Blades of Eversync, and it is set in the Swords of the Serpentine setting, uh, which is a total mouthful, but completely worth saying because it's an awesome game. We've had a ton of fun recording this first season, and this is our opportunity to talk to the people who actually made the game, made the setting, and you know what they put into it. So you can get some background. We've got with us today Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner, uh, who. Created this setting for the Gumshoe system. If you don't know what Gumshoe is, it's put out by Pellgrain Press. They put out a lot of different things. Kevin's actually written for them before. The system is very sleek and great for investigation, and it's one of my top three. So uh, you should definitely check it out. Uh, Swords of the Serpentine is coming out. When is the book actually going to hit?
1: So it should be it should be out after the New Year. Um, It was originally going to be out in 2020, and then 2020 happened. Right, of course. So
0: I guess let's introduce both our creators. My question is this, just introduce yourself, and then if I could just get a little bit of background of how you got into game design, uh, we can start with Kevin.
1: Sure. I'm Kevin Culp. I'm out of Boston. Uh, My day job, I do fatigue risk management. Basically, I teach people how to sleep during the day when they're working night shifts, and I uh, make sure they don't get involved in horrible accidents. Um, the, uh, I used to help run the D&D website, uh, EN World, run by Russ Morrissey, and sort of slipped sideways into game design from there. Pelgrine Press was kind enough to let me co-write Alhut Trail, which is a fantasy western. From there, I went on to Time Watch, and uh, now Swords of the Serpentine. Awesome. Emily?
2: Yeah. Hi, my name is Emily Dresner. Uh, As my day job, I'm an engineering director and a distributed systems expert. In my night job, I enjoy writing all kinds of crazy and sometimes very funny things and gaming. I started this by being a fan of a game called Enominee from Steve Jackson Games. I remember that game. (laughs) Where I ended up working on like four books. Five, I actually do not remember, but it was a large number of books I contributed to on the nominee line, and I was a columnist for Pyramid Magazine when it was online. I wrote a big piece that Kevin Height always says is part of my great vintage, was about how to incorporate the Knights Templar into various game settings. Uh, after that, I wrote uh, on several Vampire Masquerade lines. Um, I worked on the uh, the and I'm so sorry, this is back in the 90s, but it was the one setting that was set in the 90s and and not in the 90s, in the um, Chinese. uh, It was at
0: Requiem, was it? Yes,
2: thank you. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, I worked on some of the medieval stuff. After that, I went to go work for Goo. I wrote a book called Oh my god! I don't remember the books I worked on, uh, but I worked on Tenchi Muyo. I worked on Utna. I wrote the Pokemon game for Guardians of Order, which had both a PC name and a non-PC name.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yes.
2: Yes, uh, Cute and Fuzzy Seizure Monsters. If I talk ah. long enough, I will remember what I worked on. Uh, then uh, I took a, a long break to actually work in the video game industry for Wh- Real. Um I worked on a game called The Elder Scrolls Online. And then when I was done with that, I uh, wasn't ready to work on another game that was owned by somebody else. So I started writing a column called Dungeonomics, which was basically taking D&D and writing ridiculous economics jokes. And then that migrated from my, my blog, which had like 30 people reading it passionately. So I felt very comfortable writing exceedingly ridiculous things. So it went to uh, Critical Hits, which is run by Dave Chalker. And we wrote a ton. Yes, I know that I need to pull them all and format them all and release them in a compendium. I've been told a bunch of times. And then Kevin was reading those. And then I um, had a playtest copy of Time Watch. I contributed to one of the Time Watch books, a small story in the Time Watch books. And then Kevin said, hey, why don't you come write this thing called Eversync with me? And I was like, "Eh, all right. And then we spent, what, we've been spending years on this book now.
1: Yeah, I think it's about three years, something like that, It's by the time it's finally out. When I started with, uh, Swords of the Serpentine wasn't the original name, but uh, uh, when, I, when we started, I immediately knew I wanted to work with Emily. Because if you've ever read Den Genomics, they're brilliant, and it is exactly what we needed for this setting. Um, my rule of thumb is always work with people who are way better than you are, and this is no exception.
0: <laughs> that is a good rule of thumb. I I have done that with my cast. It's like I am not an actor. I do everything behind the scenes. They make me look better than I <laughs> than I am. So, speaking of which, one of the things that piqued my interest about the setting and and everything was the fact that it was this like really cool mix of Conan and Terry Pratchett and just that kind of feel. I felt that you know I that was the thing that I was gravitating to because I think a lot of times we think about fantasy in the role playing setting and there I played D and D since a very long since before Emily did uh, Requiem. <laughs> I hate to say, but uh, it's one of those things where it's like I'm always looking for really good places to play fantasy and and this this one struck a chord. Where did you guys come up with the? idea? Was the, the economics kind of sparked the idea of the funny, you know, sword and sorcery kind of thing? How did it come about?
1: So the very first iteration of Eversync showed up in my d and um game, where it was a highly political city that was slowly sinking into the mud of the swamp that was around it. And I loved that enough that when I left it behind and um, moved on to other other games and other campaigns, I knew I wanted to come back and visit it. So basically, I had this idea which I plopped down in Emily's lap, and everything else is hers.
2: <laughs> yeah, so the setting has a zillion influences. One of the big ones, obviously, is from Kevin's d d game about the political city with the buildings that are infinitely sinking forever. Um, there is obviously a big chunk of the history of Venice inside of that city, but that's not the only influence by a long shot. I love Terry Pratchett. Uh, just like everybody does. I love ankh Pork. I actually love the uh, history of future cities. I really like the thought of how cities develop over long periods of time and what that really means. So like the history of Paris or the history of St. Petersburg or the history of London. I'm really into the history of London, the history of New York and how New York has developed. And you start thinking of in boroughs and clans and different factions and how different ways that cities actually develop over time. Cities are very organic beast Mm -hmm. and like everything, they're just, they're all about the people. So, right. So Kevin, so Kevin has a dictate about setting design, which is every single sentence needs to be able to be spun off into a game seed. So, so when we're we're talking about the setting and setting design for Eversync, one of the big things is that, so I used to love Elmore Leonard back in the day, and mostly because he was a writer from Detroit, and I'm originally from Detroit, and apparently I only do Detroit things, before he moved down to Florida. And Elmore Leonard wrote a great book about writing, and he had this one line that always resonated with me, which is, cut the boring stuff. So, so when we're talking about setting in city design, I really wanted the city to be this living, breathing, very hooky thing where people could set whatever game they really wanted to set that was for a city, but it had enough resonance of a real city so that like, it's easier to develop concepts around while being flexible enough that anybody could set their game in that setting. So that was really the overarching design goal, and then you start feeding in all these different influences.
1: Right, right? of course,
2: Lockamora, all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, it, it needed to to echo Lankmar from Faford and the Great Mouser*. It needed to echo Kamor uh, echo from *Lies of Lockamora*. Obviously, I need more pork, uh, and you know. I think I remember the moment when I first heard about how Chicago basically, like Seattle, raised all their seats, their, yeah. their seats because everything was sinking. And for like a while, a you, yeah, you, you would try to walk through the along the sidewalks of Chicago and have to climb ladders to, for the people who had already raised their entrances to the second story and then climb downstairs on the far side to keep walking on ground level. And I thought, oh, like this, this can be the seat of something.
0: Yeah. Can you imagine in the 1800s being like, you know, we need a sewer system. We have all these buildings. Let's just pick them up and put it underneath them. It's just like, what the hell? Yeah. Cities are, it's, it's funny. I've been, um, I've been kind of looking into uh, Mesopotamian uh, ancient history and on Babylon and everything else lately, which always springs up a bunch of ideas of like, Oh, I want to do this and that. And the you're very right. The organic nature of cities is very interesting. So, I want to talk about gum, the gumshoe system for just a second. What, you know, obviously, Kevin, you'd already done a book with the gumshoe system, but for both of you, what is it about the gumshoe system that works
1: well with this setting? So, I think the most important thing here for me is that gumshoe um, in general, and both Swords of the Serpentine and Time Watch and a few other games in general, um, Presume competence. It's like the TV show *Leverage*, which Sean Rogers describes as competence porn, uh, where you don't. It's not like starting in first level D D. You start off already being really good at what you do, and you're good at your job. And the game, the game rules promote and uh, and support that, as well as giving a really nice mechanic for letting players steal a bunch of spotlight time to do very cool things. Uh, that's what what really drew uh, drew me to it.
2: So prior to Swords of the Serpentine, my favorite gumshoe game is Trails of Cthulhu. Uh, I am like a Cthulhu player, 5th edition, COC, hardcore, die. We are all going to die believing that 5th edition is the best. Take that, Ken. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I love the investigation mechanics in Trails of Cthulhu. I mean... I struggled for years with regular Call of Cthulhu with, okay, roll this 100, now you suck and now you die. And it managed to solve that problem with a lot of the investigation because Cthulhu at the end of the day is just a book collection game. It's a game about collecting books, which appeals to me on many levels. So if you think about living in a a city, a Conan-like city, uh, you really want your players to be investigating murders, investigating horrors from underneath the city, investigating the ancient history of the city, investigating people who want to do terrible things to your city. So you start to really think about, all right, Gumshoe's really more of a social, cerebral, investigation-based game system about finding secrets and digging up, people's dirty laundry and then you put that in a city and then you give everybody swords and then you let them go to town. Yeah.
1: I've gotten a lot of pushback from people originally saying, why do you have a game about investigation that said that's playing, doing sword and sorcery. And the truth is, is that every fantasy game is all about investigation. When you're trying to track down the treasure, when you're trying to avoid traps and solve the lich's mad rune of mad riddles, I mean, like that is complete investigation start to finish. And it's a beautiful fit. It just isn't one I think people assume that, you know, you're wearing fedoras and sl- and slinking along back alleyways. There's no fedoras here. I think for me, as I said, I, you know, I I started with D
0: D eons ago. And I think that the thing that like with the investigation part, if you get to if you worry about that too much, you're not seeing the whole picture of you know, you can be a, the city watch. You can be, uh, you can be a heist crew. You can be working with the Triscodane or whatever. There's, there's a billion different ways to make it work. And you know, if you love going out into the wilderness, you can do that. If you love doing dungeon delves, you can do that. Um, but it actually frees you up to do a lot more role playing. We, we're, we're always looking for games that are not so technically fiddly that it slows down the action because our main goal is to entertain people with the podcast. And that's one reason we've gravitated towards Gumshoe. We played a few Fear Itself games and I have all of the Trail of Cthulhu games. uh, And it's just really, it's really well done. So yeah, I, I would, if you're thinking, wait a minute, Investigation Fantasy, get past that and just read it Cause it's really good. Um, so what aspect of, since we're talking about the setting, what aspect of the setting are you both most proud of?
2: Uh, well, I love the city layout. Um, I love the different boroughs of the city and that they're very distinct. So there's a, you know, so there's, poor areas and immigrant areas and very rich areas and nouveau rich areas and docks and arsenals and government. And so it's got this feeling of a, a real city where people really live. And that feeling of a real city where people really live, make it much easier to build adventures. Right. So that's what I love.
0: Yes. the like the tangle and, yeah. and everything else we, uh um, yeah. I'm not going to give anything away. Um, so <laughs> we were all over that city. Let me tell you, we were, we we went to literally almost, I think every district and had something happen. And that was a great thing was that layout and being able to like, this is, you know, the upper Harbor and this is, yeah, I agree with you. It, it That was
1: a lot of fun. So, uh, Kevin, for me, I think the thing, and there's a, I love the fact that the city's basically an iceberg with, as the city, as the buildings keep sinking, that means you can just keep going down underground. But the thing I love most, I think, is this idea that people aren't burying their dead. Um, not really. What's important is that when someone dies, they get a funerary statue made of them. It could be tiny, you know, a small clay statue. It could be 20 feet tall and made out of bronze in the city square. But as long as that statue exists, the idea that you're guaranteed a place in heaven and your spirit is at rest because... When the statue is broken, and if your soul's not annihilated, that means your ghost is running around. And one of the abilities, Spirit Sight, lets the character literally rip a hole between worlds and take the party into the realm of spirits, where you can walk through the streets of Eversink watching the ghosts of buildings rising and falling around you as you walk back in time. And that's that's fun. You can use staircases that were demolished decades ago. Right.
0: That's awesome. And I gotta say that the hardest part about the interview is the fact that we have already recorded the entire season. so it's like trying not to give away anything. Um, so I since you're talking about spirits, let's talk about um, uh, Denari, right? Is that the right way to say it? Denari? Oh, yeah. uh, the goddess of Eversink. obviously she's super important and give me your take on her we'd start with emily what was what's denari like to you
2: <laughs> denari's the goddess of shameless capitalism
0: yeah <laughs>
2: <laughs> like, like no holds barred straight out of amsterdam in the 17th century no regulations no nothing total free open markets baby like total unfettered capitalism yeah
1: One of the, uh, (laughs) I can't top that, but let me try. So the game presumes small gods, that if you have a god of something annoying getting stuck in your kitchen drawer, like, and that bothers you long enough, a very tiny spirit will manifest based on your belief. And Denari a thousand years ago was just a swan spirit who a bunch of very desperate people asked for help. And now because they believe in her, their belief shapes who she is today. Which brings up some interesting possibilities, including the fact that there's there could be multiple denarii based on who you happen to worship, um, and that, that like you know any good religious uh, war, you might have different parts of the priesthood that worship very different denarii, and uh, and that might play out in game.
0: Underneath denarii is a bunch of factions. These are uh, different groups like the commoners the city is ruled by this mysterious organization called the Triskadane who are basically a council from all you know they pick people from all these different uh, factions and also just so i don't forget there is a wonderful website that you can go to and make your character and and do all of of uh the, they'll they'll tell you who's in the Triscadane for your thing. You can do you can do a whole bunch of different stuff. It does NPCs the whole nine yards. And I'm forgetting, Kevin. What's the website called again?
1: So the website is. Uh, hang on a second. Let me just pull up the URL. Two seconds. It's the I think it's called the Swords of the Serpentine Tools, but it's at Monstar M O N S T A R dot C O dot N Z uh, slash Matt slash S-O-T-S tools. You know what? Put a link. Uh, I will put get, a link. If you Google swords of the serpentine hero generator, you're going to get a link.
0: Okay, cool. Great. Yeah, and it's it, it helped out a great deal. But anyway, and I wanted to mention it before I forgot. But um, so there are all these different factions, different people from those different factions make up the Triskadane and you don't know who's in the Triskadane. And sometimes monsters, who, which is another faction, are a part of them. Um, so, you know, you have merchants, you have commoners, um, uh, there is ancient nobility, which aren't necessarily in charge of anything. They're just the oldest families in the the city. How did you develop them and which ones spark your interest the most when you're doing games?
1: So when I first, when we were first thinking about how to handle the factions, um, Discworld is actually, uh, and Ankh-Morpork is a really lovely description of this, where you've got the City Watch as a faction, and Lord Vetinari as a faction, and the nobles, um, and the trolls, and the dwarves, and what have you. And each one is sort of a separate um, social chunk of the city that butts heads with each other. If there's anything I'm really pleased about rules-wise to have added into Gumshoe, it's both social combat and the idea that the players can ally themselves with these organizations, these factions and manipulate them to get what they want. In addition to using them to get information in an early playtest game, I knew I got this right because the heroes had to break into an assassin's guild to, uh, to steal something and it was being guarded by mercenaries. And one of the heroes had at was allied with the mercenaries. And the guy says, wait, can I spend these points to have these people be um, in my same company? I said, sure can I spend all my points and I'm their commander? I'm like, sure. <laughs> and he <laughs> simply ordered the mercenaries guarding the Assassin's Guild back to camp, giving them a free rein in.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. A- Emily, what are your thoughts on the faction?
2: Uh, I have lots of opinions on the faction. On the Triscadane, <laughs> Tris- I sometimes amuse myself uh, imagining Eversync is ruled entirely by the power of a random number generator. And that Denari just picks 13 random people off the street and it and totally pretends like this is something that's official and
0: just to see what happens. You get 13 years.
2: (laughs) It's kind of like picking 13 anonymous people off of Reddit and telling them to go run a city. So, (laughs) and nothing bad could happen from that. So what really caught my eye is the ancient nobility, just the image of these people who were sitting around their dining room table in total darkness in their slowly sinking tower, wearing their moldering silks, eating off of gold plates and eating porridge because they were too proud to actually sell those plates for money, for food. And for some reason, that just, for me, the ancient nobility crystallized Everything. Now I love the Mercanti. Those are my bros. If you ever read any of my Mercanti stuff, you'll see that I have nothing but I can't to have any favorites, but I have a favorite. I because they work with uh, the the Denari ethos of let's basically go destroy the world for cash. So they're they're like natural evil and I love the natural evil. You can make Mercanti be as terrible as you possibly want, and their motivation's really easy, right? They just <laughs> want to rule the world, and...
1: Is that so wrong?
2: And is that so <laughs> wrong? Will you hold that against them?
1: Uh, if there's one thing... You mentioned the Triscidane before, Wes, and in one of our playtest games, the hero accidentally killed one of the secret rulers of the city, one of the members of the Triscidane. Uh They found that out the hard way when they re- looted his body and found his... Uh, gold coin that signifies that he's a secret ruler. And the next day, a bunch of official people showed up on their doorstep and hired them to solve the murder because they used prophecy to find out who had killed them, and the prophecy told those the um, the investigators that these heroes were the most likely people to learn who killed them. Of course, that's because they killed him himself.
0: But <laughs> That's really cool. That kind of dovetails into swan tails. let's just keep it there, um, into my next question, which is how wealth works and why it's important to kind of the coolness and the, sword and, the uh, sword and sorcery aspect of things. How did wealth work into the game?
1: My favorite ability in Gumshoe is an ability called preparedness. And preparedness says, hey, we don't worry about gearing up. You just make a roll if you want something funky. And if you succeed at your roll, you totally remember to bring it with you. So my big challenge when designing the rules was, how the heck do you match that up? With a money system. Because, you know, fantasy, all about the loot zord. Um And we had to, to make that work. We went through a lot of different iterations on this. And what we finally settled on is that while we have an incredibly complex and delightful system of coinage that nobody should ever remember because it's, uh, it's impossible to remember, uh, you get your, your treasure in terms of wealth. Um, where wealth, if you spend, and then you spend that wealth to live a certain lifestyle for the adventure. Wealth one means you're living in the gutter and, and, uh, and uh, grabbing food away from rats. Wealth five means you're living richer than the goddess in an opulent lifestyle. And you'll gain wealth as you adventure, and then you will spend it at the beginning of each adventure to figure out what your lifestyle is. And based on what you choose, you get societal bonuses. They'll either give you an advantage or a disadvantage, depending on what kind of a person you're talking to. So if you are living a poor lifestyle but have to deal with commoners, you're going to be doing a lot better than that guy who's uh, dripping with gems and furs this adventure. The goal is make people run through their cash as much as possible. I think the thing that I think of a lot is
0: in Conan when he's like on the horse just covered in in the movie where he's covered in gold coming through the city and then he punches a camel for some (laughs) reason. But it's that sort of thing. What were some other things about the the setting in particular that you guys wanted to make sure were part of the setting um, flavor-wise? Like, I know that it's kind of got a renaissance feel to it. I heard something about pointy shoes.
1: <laughs> Fashion is important. There's somebody in the city who pays pro, uh, profits to tell them what the fashions are going to be next week so they can be the first person wearing them. Uh, but Emily, here, let me start for you. Food. Take it.
2: Oh, yeah. So I'm a big nerd of the history of food. Well, I'm a big nerd on a lot of different dimensions, but that that's one of them. And uh, slightly obsessed with how people ate in the city. So if you read the setting, you'll see that there's a lot of restaurants that are talking um, around, but... It's really important. If you think about like a gaming adventuring group, what happens? Well, everybody ends up in the tavern. Everybody ends up sitting around a table. Everybody ends up having a meal. Everybody ends up drinking some booze, either to plot where they're going to go or talk about where they've just been. So wouldn't it be nice if we talked about what was actually on the table? (laughs) So I get really weird about, oh, well, you know, they've got pigs, but not because you have to have pigs in the city because they're living in garbage cans, but you can't have cows. There's no room. You can't really have horses. You, everything's canals. You've got chickens everywhere. That makes sense. And eels. You've got to have eels. They're a, a, lot of lot eels. Of a lot of eels. So everything's eel pie. Um, so, and then I incorporated some of the things like Venice is a big history of originally being founded on salt ponds and salt is a major driver of wealth in the medieval era. Um, because without it, you die, and whoever owns it right, gets to dictate basically how much it costs. So I always had the original Eversink wealth being based on the salt marshes outside the city, but now you've got salt marshes outside the city, so now you clearly have some sort of salt creature living in the salt marshes outside the city, uh, so now you've got an adventure.
0: What I did with the, the campaign is each person started off in a different location. And yeah, at some point, they end up at a, a pub. I think they were at the Red Pig, because I used the generator and <laughs> came up with that. You were going to say something, Kevin?
1: Yeah, uh, and by the way, let me just mention that all of the generators on that tools page were created by Matthew Breen, who is uh, the uh, my my secret shady uh, uh, co-designer and a bunch of things that I create. And he has been unbelievably helpful in uh, both sort of thinking out this game and Time Watch before it, and in creating all of those electronic tools. So kudos to Matt. Yeah, they're a great help. He did a great job on those. For for me, um, I'm tempted to say disease is one of my favorite setting issues because I had a lot of fun designing the diseases. But I think for me, the, the actual thing, the, the name Serpentine refers to the Serpentine River, which Eversink sits at the bottom of But it also refers to the hideous snake people, who ruled this area more than a thousand years ago and who are definitely dead and who are long since died out and aren't living deep, deep beneath the city at all. <laughs> that is a silly rumor that has no basis in fact. Right. Of course. Yes. Of course. Just
0: real quick, what changed the most during playtesting? Was, was there one thing oh, that God. came out during play t- playtesting that you're like, okay, we're going to redo this or an idea that really sparked
1: something that gave you some you know, epiphany? Yeah, two things. Um, mechanically, so there's a cool thing, I think, oh, I think it's a cool thing that we're doing with Gumshoe Mechanics called maneuvers, which basically say, hey, if you want to disarm this person, if you want to convince that person to let you into the building um, and want to do it through social combat or, you know, through the flick of a wrist, whatever, um, we know we have a mechanical way to make that happen. And that, when it first came out in playtest, was unbelievably broken. Like, just plain didn't work. And I had diluted myself for a year that it did. Uh, so thanks to playtest, that really, that went from a nice idea that was horribly implemented to actually, it works really well. Uh, the other thing which I really am delighted by that changed during playtesting was sorcery. Yeah, sorcery. The uh, You know, I, I knew that we wanted um, social combat as well as physical combat, but we weren't sure when we started how to handle the sorcery. And what I ended up doing was actually taking a page from Robin D. Laws' long-ago feng shui game in terms of how sorcerers could basically make their sorcery look like whatever they wanted to. It doesn't matter. The mechanics of the game were what drove the sorcery's effect. And we implemented that here as well so that you have total free reign as to what you want your sorcery to look like within certain spheres like plants or lightning or, you know, whatever um uh but the uh but the actual implementation and how you implement that is really up to player creativity and i love how that sort of evolved and changed
2: i want to say one thing about sorcery is that we were at metatopia in some year in the before times and kevin's like hey you want to play this game and i'm like okay and one of the players was a proto is a prototype sorcerer is a flesh sorcerer that can like just pull out globs of flesh and mold them like turn them into like little dudes that ran around and it was truly horrible and he had the servant so he was a servile sorcerer that was a flesh sorcerer so he was like that horrible serpent uh, horrible servant all dressed in black who you knew was just like trying to rip your heart out and I was like yeah I think this is a good game I think we should do this Yeah. So, so that was like, this is awful. This is, this is absolutely delightful. Um, I, I'm going to second the 2000 revisions of the sorcery rules uh, that they went through. Uh, mm-hmm. The sorcery rules went through a lot of work. The bane of my existence was the trap rules. <laughs> I, I did not enjoy them <laughs> for a while there.
1: Did, did you like how they ended up?
2: They, they came out much better at
1: the end. I, I, was, um, I was right near the end and was reading the trap rules and said, oh my God, these are so boring. I hate them. And I said, then well, why am I putting them in my game? And I ripped them out <laughs> and rewrote all of them, and I'm much happier with the result. Unfortunately, redoing the trap rules made me um, redo maneuvers, which also made me redo sorcery. Um, So there was this horrible like nine-day cascade of rules changes, but it was for the better.
0: Well when you throw a throw a stone in a pond. Yeah. You know <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh,
2: yeah. It's domino effect.
0: It's gonna go everywhere. Um so we've we've mainly talked about Eversink. Um that's the, the, the focus of where Blades of Eversink obviously is gonna be this season. But there are lands outside Yep. of Eversink. And I just uh kind of what are the lands outside of Eversink like?
2: I, I was taking my hand trying to be openly multicultural to so like the people that live at Eversink they're like they're like sort of brownish people. They're by nature um but I was trying to open it up so that you could have any plausible nationality that you really wanted. Walking through Eversink you could be anybody you wanted. It, you didn't have to be like our generic sort of Mediterranean uh, person. I mean, they're all humans until Kevin does something magical. But uh, for yeah, but for now, right? As I, I wanted people that like could come from the Middle East. I really liked the Mongols that I put in. Right, the horse lords. I thought that having horse lords, it was important for me that I had a pirate nation that was run by a woman who was a badass. That was important to me. So that's me. Um, that's. Yeah, totally. I wanted to put in like creepy sorcerer towers and I wanted to make it clear that there's no sorcery in Eversink, but that doesn't mean there's no sorcery outside of Eversink, right? That's a Denari thing, but that's not generally a every place else in the world. Every place else in the world, sorcery is just as horrible, but it doesn't mean that it's not horrible and totally accepted.
0: Uh, how just real quick, how does corruption work outside of EverSync? Does it hurt any of the other gods? because uh, it hurts Denari. Sure. Um uh, and the short
1: answer to that is oh hell if I know. I mean <laughs> so, so there's <laughs> That's a mechanical, the right? Answer, right? <laughs> when you when you cat, when you um draw on corruption to cast sorcerer spells, you do one of two things. You internalize it in which killing it changes something physical about you. And I did that because I wanted uh, you know, um, Nin Gobble of the Seven Eyes um, from uh, Faford of the Great Mouser is, you know, cloaked with a lot of little eyeballs moving around in there inside the cloak. And I'm like, oh, I want a reason that a player can evolve that naturally. But also, if you externalize it, it messes with the morale of all of your friends. So all of the bonus stuff, the fact that chickens lay rocks instead of eggs and babies start crying and, you know, don't stop for six months... Oh, you know, that's all window dressing. Outside of it, I don't think it necessarily interferes with other gods. I think it'd be really fun to have it be different in different realms, just based on what the GM thinks is cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, and uh, again, that's part of the thing that uh, draws me to Gumshoe is the fact that you do give players and GMs a lot of room to kind of build it the way that they want to play it, which is great. So there are four different character professions uh, and I'm going to try to rattle them off. I believe it's thief warrior sen- sentinel and what's the thir- fourth Sorcerer. one? Sorcerer. Sorcerer. So, but within that, there's, there's a ton of, of customization that you can do. Uh, you can do a sneak thief. You can do just a lot of stuff. What are your guys's favorite character builds? Do you have one?
2: Not yet. Actually, I don't, it's, I don't have a favorite character build yet.
1: That's a really interesting question. I think my favorite character build leans more towards the, um, like Kugel the clever or Kugel the clever from uh, dying earth, uh, Jack Vance's mm-hmm. novels who doesn't necessarily have to even own a weapon and is still incredibly efficient in combat. Um, and in confrontation, um, uh, I, you know, I think that I uh, I really enjoy sorcerers because I like the creativity they can do with the magic system mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that it's probably not really going to be good for you if you do that. Uh, right. But I, I love the fact that one of the abilities is ridiculous luck. So if you're playing a thief with a ridiculous luck, you know, you can really lean on that. We had one player who didn't have a lot of other abilities but had five ranks of ridiculous luck, which meant oh that he was just – they called him they called him like lucky whatever his his name was and in combat he never actually was seen wielding a sword just bad things happened to the people he was fighting and it was oh, really God. fun to see
2: that's awesome because luck is a fantastic superpower yeah
1: it really, it is.
0: really is it is we yeah. have in the game uh, two of the players are i will be able to say this two of our players are playing brother and sister and one of them the brother is has five ranks of ridiculous luck and he
1: she hates him he's
0: always getting his way he's always doing everything
1: right yep there are rules at least for if that happens um that you can hit somebody just hammer someone with that many ranks with really bad luck for a scene right Um, yeah which
0: we i think we did a couple of times it came up but
1: it's a lot of fun
0: because of the dynamic between the brother and sister that's great my last question is, will you guys be expanding on the set- setting with further books? He asks, hoping.
1: <laughs> so one of, the, one of the reasons that the external locations outside Eversync are painted with a pretty broad stroke is so that either uh, GMs or, uh, or we can dive into those um, and do something pretty specific and pretty remarkable with them. So we give you sort of the, the basic feel for it, for you to fake it in the meantime, and then you can develop those yourself if that's a thing you love to do. Right. Um, the uh, I am working right now... So we have an uh, adventure series that will be coming out called The Slytherin God, um, which will but still set primarily in Eversynch. I'm currently working on a book of non-human heroes so that you can play something like 25 other, um, other ancestries mm-hmm. and still have it... Some of those are really sort of high fantasy and they don't fit into the gritty um, sword and sorcery world at all. Some of them fit into sword and sorcery and Eversink really beautifully, and I'm breaking it up between those two. Uh, you know, I think that how we what we do with external development outside of the city depends on how much people love the game, right? Yeah, if that's right. something people want to see, then that's something we'll do. What, uh,
0: Emily, what part of the world would you like to expand on?
2: Oh, man. If, I could be, if I'm leaving Eversink and I could go expand on anything, oh, I have notes on like the northern Nordic city that's all sort of, it edges a little bit too close to Steampunk for the Eversync setting, but I, I think I've worked out how to make it work. So I have notes on that place. They've got giant dirgibles, and I love the idea of them having sorcery-empowered dirgibles that they can go drop bombs on the horse lords with. That's funny. Um, so I love the pirates. The pirates have been um, they are very close to my heart. I just love the idea of these giant floating barnacle colored cities full of witch queens uh, with all the boats that are capsized and all lashed together and all one giant city. And it never actually has like a home place. It just floats back and forth in the ocean. Um, so there are those are my favorites.
0: These are leading questions because, um, uh, first season is definitely set in Eversync. but second season I am planning on branching out a little bit and going into the outer outer realms as they were. So um, it's good to hear what you guys uh, like about the different parts of it. Uh, go ahead, Kevin.
1: Oh, I was just going to say I have um, it'll appear in Pellgrain's C Page XX blog on their on their website in, uh, in December, uh, but I've written up a. Um, a city called Joining, which is not really set in the same world necessarily, but it is a small town in the middle of a giant sequoia forest, basically, that a couple hundred years ago was an interplanar nexus to multiple places, both in this world and in other worlds as well. And through adventuring, it's pretty likely that the heroes are going to end up restoring that nexus and giving themselves access to a ton of different places. And so, you know, I've laid that out as sort of a a different kind of setting. If you don't want to start in a giant city, if you want to start in a small town. Right. uh, And uh, I'm using that as a setting for my, one of my playtest groups. That's awesome. That's awesome. Good to hear. Like I said, I am
0: a a huge fan of the setting and I'm, you know, super excited for the show to come out. And uh, I really appreciate that you guys were able to take some time and talk to me about um, everything involved with it. It was great. That's uh, that basically covers all of my questions. Is there anything you guys want to plug that you're working on right now that you even can plug?
2: Oh man, I am. And unfortunately, 2020 has really yeah. destroyed my ability to write. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, I have a lot of things I would like to be working on. I have a whole list of them, but it's just unfortunately the um,
0: the end. The uh, end times yeah. need to end.
2: Yeah, the end times need to end uh, one way or another to restore creativity. I was starting to work on some cyberpunk ideas, but those all got shelved back in March, unfortunately.
1: I'm lucky that, I mean, there's a lot that I hate about the pandemic, but actually it's been really good for my creativity and productivity, maybe because I'm stuck at home. Uh, I am, in addition to all sorts of sort of fun serpentine stuff coming out, uh, I will be uh, probably in the start of the new year, be kickstarting a game called Loot the Kingdom. Well, which, uh, where you are a, uh, adventurer who, unlike those goody two-shoes adventurers who adventure to save the world, you're just trying to steal stuff. And over the course of the game, you accidentally steal things from the horrible bad guy and then end up having to topple them by a series of fantasy heists, um, because there's no other way to do it. Uh, it is a, it's like, I think it's probably a three to nine session game. In three acts, uh, but designed to feel a little bit like you are competent, competent heroes who are really good at stealing stuff uh, with with very rules like So, anyways, that's uh, that's on my plate right now.
0: That's great. Well, again, thank you guys so much for you know taking the time. I really appreciate that you guys uh, talked with me about it. it's. It's such a good system and it's such a good setting. And I can't wait to share Blades of Eversync with everybody so that they can then go out and get the setting for themselves and play it with their friends.
1: From our perspective, and on behalf of Pelgrane as well, thank you so much for doing this, right? I mean, you and your players took a leap of faith, and you're making our game shine. And I got to tell you, from my perspective, there is nothing more fun for me. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yeah,
2: it is pretty cool. Yeah, I agree.
0: Yeah, I, I, well, I think that, I think that, um, we all benefit from great, great content. So, um, thank you guys so much. And so just so everybody can find you, uh, we'll start with Emily, where can people find you out there on the old internet?
2: You can find me on Twitter at, at multiplexer, M U L T I P
0: L E X E R. And Kevin?
1: I'm also on Twitter at, at Kevin Culp, K E V I N K U L P. You'll also find me, there's a gumshoe forum on Facebook, uh, and I'm fairly active there as well.
0: What about Pelgrane Press? Is it just pelgranepress.com, I
1: believe? It's pelgranepress.com. There's a resources page for every single one of their games, and I have one or two articles coming out a month with uh, free adventures and sample heroes. I just did a. Uh, analysis of how to play Elric of Melda Benet in Swords of the Serpentine, and a bunch of different things that you'll find there on their blog.
0: Blades of Eversync starts on January 8th. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. Uh, You can also find it on our website at 12sidedstories.com. I can't wait to see more from both of you. You're both great, and I'm really excited. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you.